Ready to have a deeper conversation about body and soul, sacred leadership, and our collective evolution? Welcome to the Wise Body Ancient Soul Podcast with me, your host, Cherise Sisu. In today's episode, I bring you a story from my own lived experience as a belly dancer performing and teaching, as well as from what I experienced watching some of the best performers in the world um, to really convey something that was landing with me this week was how we really have this intelligence in the body, this wisdom that operates often at a level um, outside of our awareness and our consciousness and how um, sometimes that communication happens between bodies, between me to you right now as you're listening to my voice, maybe watching me on video and like my DNA, I love to say like my DNA is talking to your DNA and they're having this whole like side conversation that you and I aren't even privy to. But in the meantime, codes are being exchanged and like this is how we inspire each other. This is how we move each other. This is why you can be, you know, watching something uh, on the news or in Netflix or what have you and um, be moved to tears or get angry or, you know, like the way that we can touch each other um, is it's through our senses and our senses are filtered by our bodies, right? So um, I was journaling about this this morning and what dropped in was this story that I had been working on um, sharing this experience of what I receive, not only, you know, as an audience member for just some of the greatest performers, but also having experienced some of the same um, exchange of energy in ceremonial dance. Um, There is a, um, in Egyptian culture, there's this uh, women's dance, um, or a ceremony that's called the czar, you know, and this is um, um, an old, old practice. Uh, many would, you know, many amongst the educated set would call it backwards, right? And yet, and yet still to this day, if um, you are having really any kind of issue, it's very interesting. It's like, uh, you know, there's a betrayal or there's financial issues or someone is sick and it'll be like... We need to, it's time for the czar, like bring in the czar and the, they'll bring in the drummers and bring, uh, uh, the women together and they will dance for hours to this, um, particular rhythm. And it will, you know, those who are moved to dance will move. And, um, it really puts one into a trance state and magical things happen, right? Um, and so having experienced this, have, having spoken to, you know, some of my teachers who have had this experience, um, I brought some of these elements together in this story. So um, to frame it, uh, 
it is uh, nonfiction, it's semi-autobiographical, up until the end where I'll share what is a true story, a true story that was relayed to me by Sahra Saida, one of my dance mentors. She's a dance ethnographer, historian, anthropologist, a well-respected researcher in the field who had just a really unique and amazing opportunity to work with some of the best and brightest um, in the Egyptian dance world under very special circumstances. And I um, I hope to have her <laughs> on a future episode to share some of that because it's really this mix of synchronicity, uh, right timing, um, just amazing ways that the stars aligned so that she could have that experience and really get a window as an American dancer, right? Um, California-based dancer, um, getting such an intimate peek into the um, Arabic dance world. Um, So uh, it was part of her certification course, Journey to Egypt. And um, she shares this story of women dancing on a moonless night um, and that part is true. And then I take my experience and I paint a picture um, based on my experience. And that's where um, that's where my imagination slash intuition comes in. So without further ado, I'm going to get started um, with that story. World-renowned Cairo dancer Dina was teaching and performing in Chicago for the first time. And true to Egyptian time, her solo show had begun hours after its scheduled start, long after the show in which I had danced in uh, for the performer myself. I'd skipped the banquet dinner to save money and had been drinking the freely offered ice water as we waited for the prima donna to begin. Hence my predicament. Since the show started 30 minutes before a growing but insistent pressure on my bladder had been stealing my attention. Glancing around the room, I met the panic-stricken gaze of more than one dancer in the audience as we realized that there would not be an intermission. More and more than one of us desperately needed a break, and not one of us wanted to miss a minute of what was happening on stage. Famous for her frequent and stunning costume changes, we know that our only chance as an audience would be to coordinate our pee break with her next transformation, which heartbreakingly only gave us a few minutes. We later learned that her impossibly lightning fast changes were only possible with the aid of multiple sets of hands backstage, quickly removing and replacing costume pieces amidst rapid fire cursing and praying in Arabic. Finally, when Dina dashed off stage, she would literally dash off. She'd like run and jump off stage for her next costume change, right? A handful of us jumped out of our seats as if on cue. We made a break for it, running full tilt toward the nearest restroom, high heels muffled by the carpet underfoot and cocktails dresses flying. You have to imagine, like many of us were still on our stage makeup from earlier. So we're in our finery and we are booking it, you know, like, like a sprinting in a marathon. As we hustled down the blandly appointed hallway, my face flushed with more than exertion. I kept reliving the fiasco of my performance earlier that evening in front of Dina. I kept spinning to myself. A studio owner friend had choreographed a sassy Malaya left for herself and a few of her most advanced students, and at the last minute, her right-hand dancer canceled. I'd agreed to sub for her and quickly picked up the choreo over a few late-night rehearsals. 
The Malaya laugh is a theatrical dance named for the Malaya, a large black shawl that the women of Alexandria used to cover from head to ankle at the time the dance was popularized, I would say back in the 1950s. Meant as a modesty wrap, the Malaya could also be artfully hugged to one's curves to advantage. In truth, the way the dancers, so in the theatrical dance, right, which is a total departure from um, actual folkloric dance, there is no Malaya dance in Egyptian culture. It was something, you know, he's called the grandfather of modern Egyptian dance, Mahmoud Reda, when he went about the countryside collecting folk dances to bring to the stage um, to help shift some of the, you know, at that time, the dancing in Egypt was, it, the, the, the folk dancing was seen as a great embarrassment. Um, and there was lots of shame around it uh, as a culture, as a nation. And he was really determined to elevate the dance and, and, and bring it to the world stage in a different way. And so he went around the countryside and collected dances. Um, and from uh, Alexandria, he brought this garment, the Malaya, but he completely invented a dance. Um, and, and even the costuming underneath is this little ruffled number, right? Um, that would not be, you know, in reality, if you were to go to Alexandria at the time, most likely what would be under the Malaya would be like a galabaya. It would be a kaftan. She would be covered from head to toe. But we're talking 1950s. Mahmoud Reda was also a star of screen. He was inspired by Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, lots of Western dancers. Um, so he would bring in ballet posturing. He would bring in, he, you know, they, they've been fusing <laughs> dance styles, as every culture has for many, many years. Um, still with this thread, this through line to very, very old practices. This is what is really interesting to me. So in truth, the way the dancers wrap and unwrap the malaya, exposing the short dress underneath and even swinging the ends coquettishly would never happen on the streets of Alexandria, as I explained. If she chose to wear a malaya, she remained covered. Perhaps the inspiration for the Malaya left dance was sparked by a momentary readjustment of the shawl that might sizzle an onlooker's desire, the way a woman would recover when a corner of her shawl would slip, flashing a glimpse of her brightly colored galabea, or the way she might intentionally adjust her Malaya just so, following acceptable custom while also highlighting the sway and curve of her hips as she walked lowering her lashes as she passed the ten, the target of her attentions. So a certain amount of fantasy and flirtatiousness is allowed for with the Malaya left dance. There are limits to what is acceptable, however. I was still early enough in my dance career not to have learned a cardinal rule of performance. Don't debut a costume on the night of the performance. It sounds so logical, right? But I was so just focused on trying to catch up and learn the routine, right? Do a run through in full costume. And for God's sakes, at least try it on before you show up to the gig, right? So being so focused on learning the dance, I never tried on the ruffled stretchy dress that sat in the bag Monica handed to me at the first rehearsal. So imagine my shock when I put it on and the dress 
barely covered the essentials. It was so short. It was more like a tunic than a dress. I had forgotten how much more slender the dancer I was replacing was than me. And I had totally underestimated how my curvier hips and butt would change the fit of the dress. My mind reeled. I can hardly walk in it and maintain my modesty. How will I dance with it? I looked at the other ladies in my group and all of their dresses reached nearly to knee and for Monica all the way to mid-calf. I was the only one with so much leg exposed. Backstage, the shocked and judging looks from other dancers gathered from all over the country to celebrate Dina's visit told me everything I needed to know. I had passed the limits of propriety. All my body shame came right to the surface. At that time, I never exposed my thighs. Not at the beach, never. Years of sidelong glances and comments by my mother, whose slender legs stuck straight down from a tiny flat butt, and growing up as the weird curvy anomaly compared to my much taller slender siblings. Thank goddess, the costume included a netted mask. It would be harder to identify me among the audience members after the show. At least that's what I told myself. As the saying goes, the show must go on, so I danced as best I could as Dina watched, mutely, her face impassive, but for a slightly raised eyebrow. In hindsight, I can see how my discomfort with the costume was more my story than anyone else's. If anyone would be open to stretching the bounds of costume propriety, it would be Dina. In Egypt, Raksharki, which is the dance of the East, it's what professional, that's what belly dance is called there, right? Is highly regulated down to what you can wear on stage. Actual teams of council members visit and review dancers' performances to make sure that they aren't being immoral. And yes, dancers have been arrested for, um, you know, inspiring debauchery, right? When Dina had built up enough clout in the industry that she could change up her costume, (laughs) translation, she made enough money, right? She could change up her costume to just within the bounds of what was permissible. It's part of what made her so famous, right? It was more than an act to get attention. It was a political protest. She was thumbing her nose at the establishment and their discriminatory treatment of dancers. So if anyone could handle a little extra thigh, it was Dina. We arrive at the bathroom and there's a sign on the door that says, out of order. You've got to be kidding me, one of my beautiful compatriots panted. To the men's room, I cried. This was an emergency. (laughs) We needed to get back to the ballroom before you missed a minute more of Dina's performance. Until seeing her dance in person, I'll be honest, I wasn't sure what all the fuss was about. Dina was clearly important within the dance form. People all over the world emulated her signature movements and costume styles, and Her costumes were fantastic, but it wasn't until that night, once I could focus and settle into what was happening on stage, that I understood her magic. Earlier that day, taking workshops with her, I'd been surprised by her petite stature. She couldn't have stood any taller than me at five foot three. She taught us a choreography that she seemed to be making up on the spot. And yet I had seen her magnetize crowds. Like there's a famous performance of her on television. She came out, you know, for a New Year's Eve performance in what looked like gauzy, you know, harem pants and top with uh, with nothing but what looked like a black bikini, you know, full bottom, but black bikini underneath. The crowd went crazy, screaming, throwing clothes at her, like... 
it, it's this is this is the kind of response that Dina inspires, right? That evening, as I watched her dance number after number, I tried to identify the warmth that was washing over me. And finally, it dawned. Love. I felt waves of love coming off of her as she danced. I couldn't pinpoint it to a move or expression. She wasn't doing anything overtly complex, right? Of course, like all that internal movement, knowing what I know, but the dance was complex and was based on years and years of mastery. And it seemed so simple. And that was the magic of it. She was simply being so fully present with us, offering her soul to us as she danced with so much love. It was palpable. The warmth felt like generosity, like healing. It felt like an exchange older than time itself. In Arabic music, there is this concept of tarab, or ecstatic change. It describes a building of energy or tension that is then released in a shift in the music. Um, it, it doesn't just apply to Arabic music, but they actually have a word for this. Um, the best singers, musicians, and dancers understand this concept in their bones and can shift the energy of the room around it. How does one explain the release of emotion that is tarab? How can one explain the waves of love from a dancer? It's like a wave breaking apart on the shore, then gathering to break a new, endless, rhythmic, infinite, like the most perfect resolution. It is not unlike the climax in the act of lovemaking. It is an ecstatic transformation, the shift and release and change into something new. And done right, it touches the very core of you. It's a concept that's named in Arabic music, but that I feel also describes how we impact the world around us, how we are able by casting our energy to shift and change the very form of things around us. We're, we're doing it whether we're aware of it or not, right? It may seem like a miraculous or outrageous claim, and yet we know this from quantum physics. Our intention as we gaze upon an atom changes the way it behaves. As I felt the waves of love rolling off Dina as she danced, I felt myself transformed. I understood at a level I hadn't before the power of this dance to heal and change, not just the dancers, as I'd experienced internally, like as a dancer being on stage, how powerfully healing this dance is, but also for the people we share it with. I better understood my power, seeing it modeled with Dina and my embarrassment for earlier that evening dissolved in a tiny village on an egyptian hillside there remains a scant handful of elderly women who remember the old dances learned as children from their mothers and their mother's mothers they perform these ancient rituals only on moonless nights, long after whatever mulid or festivity has settled down, and only the most devoted linger, hoping for the rare sight. As onlookers shut down and pocket the ubiquitous phones and the fire dies down to embers, a cloak of darkness falls around the gathered circle. As if materializing from thin air, two white-haired men emerge from the shadows, 
to pull a pair of stools close to the fading fire's edge and sit with their drums. One balances a wide, shallow frame drum on his knee with one hand, while with the palm of the other he sounds a limping, sonorous bass beat. Doom, tak doom, tak doom, tak doom. The other holds a doombeck across his knees, palm and fingers of his right hand rolling across its snakeskin top. His left hand moves in and out of the drum's onk-shaped body, subtly lilting its tone up and down. He begins by echoing the larger drum's rhythm, then improvising lightly around it. As the drummers settle into the ceremonial rhythm, the elder women step forward. The dark burkas that drape them from head to toe whisper a hushed rustle, their bare feet padding silently in the dust. They raise their arms and begin to dance, their undulating forms barely discernible against the deep darkness surrounding them. As their hips twist and tremble, as one bends at the waist and another sways, time rolls to a stop its movement halted and its illusory nature revealed. The circle is transported to a time when women's bodies represented the sacred mystery of life. And the dancer priestess stood shoulder to shoulder with the shaman warrior as a guiding seer to her people. Then it was understood that her song and dance thinned the veils between worlds, allowing unseen wisdom and energy to be channeled through her body, healing and activating anyone within reach of the transmission. The elders dance like this, covered in near pitch blackness, as a protection for themselves and their audience. If officials get wind of the illegal display, any witnesses would be able to say to their interrogators, I couldn't say who was dancing. Sir, they were covered, and it was a dark, moonless night. Of course, they know exactly which of the town's elders hold the threads of ancient wisdom, preserving them through the present. Each woman's burka is individual and unique to her. The hem of Fatma's is embroidered with little flowers, while Shahina's veil has a gently scalloped edge. Zaida has been old for as long as anyone can remember. No one knows her true age. But when she moves on these nights, her body is like a young woman's. But to protect the sanctity of this ritual and the women who risk their freedom to perpetuate it, all tacitly agree to this farce. One young man, standing a bit back from the small crowd, covers his eyes, unsure how to respond to the uninhibited pelvic circles of a woman old enough to be mother to his grandmother. He's confused, for his imam has drilled into him that a woman's physical body is dangerous and distracting to his pious devotion to the Prophet. And yet, all that he feels rolling off the joyously dancing woman is pure, unconditional love. In wave after pink-colored wave, so palpable, he could swear that he tastes rose petals, that unmistakable fragrance filling his nostrils. Humbled, he drops to his knees. A young woman, holding a sleeping baby to her breast, begins to quietly weep the grief over her mother's passing that had been held like a brittle leaf under a stone heavy on her chest has suddenly inexplicably given way. 
Her sister takes the now fussy infant from her arms so she can freely rock to and fro, now holding herself as her sobs break free in loud, open-mouthed wails. Two men, one with the unmistakable salt and pepper of age and the other with a few scant hairs of silver glinting in his beard, had carefully attended the evening's event. Arriving separately and at staggered times, they avoided any but momentary eye contact as they purposely wove their paths not to cross. As the women dance, under cover of the moonless dark, they sidle toward each other, inch by inch, eyes never leaving the undulating forms. When finally, each felt the warmth of the other through the cloth of their sleeves, one rough cotton and the other fine silk, their fingers stretched, curled, and intertwined. Hand in hand, the lovers' heads tilt toward each other, feeling the energy of the dancers gently wash over them releasing the shame they've been taught to feel about their love and overwhelming them with love and safety. Another woman begins to stomp in rhythm with her wise elders swaying forward and back as she slips into a trance. Several of the women near her close in around her in a protective circle, providing a screen of privacy as well as their own encircling arms so she doesn't inadvertently fall or hurt herself. Eyes closed dreamily. She tears. The woman's hands begin slapping a syncopated rhythm over her body, palm to upper arm, closed fist to torso, and clapping down the length of her legs in a display that would have been considered shameful. Outside the circle of her family's women, she feels a warm flush sweep over her body as blood circulates to joints that have been stiff and sore. They prickle and fizz as if the stars themselves have entered her bloodstream. Later, she will have no memory of her instinctive dance, nor will any of the women who closed around her protectively ever speak of it. The woman will notice that she is able once again to bend and kneel, and during the next call to prayer, she is surprised as she lifts her shawl to drape it over her head and around her shoulders that her elbow no longer twinges with pain. I've experienced firsthand the power of this dance to heal and move my body as the dancer and performer, as well as influence the people within earshot. And uh, that's what I was hoping to bring forward in that story today. And I hope that you enjoyed this flight of fancy and fantasy and reality with me. What are your stories? I want to know. What does this spark for you? What instinctive memories does this spark for you? Moments of inexplicable, right? Awakening, healing, inspiration, because of something that you saw or heard or smelled or spoke. This can be a very powerful alchemy when we read something and then say it aloud and how that lands in the body can really awaken awaken us and bring forward what we next need. 
in our soul's growth, um, in our life's path, in our purpose's path. <laughs> Not to be confused with porpoise's path. <laughs> um, our purpose, our business, our life, our relationships. You know, it's all this sort of constantly evolving and expanding growth trajectory. And right here, your body, in your body is the key. So yes, I would love to know what, what stories did this spark for you? Um, what memories, uh, maybe, uh, that maybe even lay uh, below the level of consciousness up until now? I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for joining me on Wise Body, Ancient Soul. I hope it reminds you how powerful and magical you truly are. If you're looking to connect more deeply with the wisdom your body and soul carry, it would be my honor to guide you. Check out my website to learn how else we can play together. And if you feel so moved, kindly subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so more juicy light bringers like you can hear these transmissions. Here's to your joy and wild success. From my heart to yours, I love you. Take what you need and pass it on.